Well, hello and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and we are here exploring the highways and byways of jazz recorded history. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I decided I was going to talk a little bit about the evolution of the jazz solo, the idea of a solo improvisation in the 1920s. Uh, Louis Armstrong was, of course, probably the greatest exponent, or the first great exponent of the improvised jazz solo, but he certainly wasn't the first. In fact, uh, all through the 1910s, dance music had been introducing more and more types of improvisation into uh, the fabric of arrangements and so forth. It wasn't until Louis Armstrong really came to be heard on a, on a large-scale basis when he was in New York with the Fletcher Henderson Band in 1924 and 25 that people realized the capacity for an improvised solo and what could be done with it by a genius at any rate. Armstrong had that sense of grandeur and drama and architecture to his solos that uh, was allied with his technique and his uh, sound and all the different things that made him the great player that he was. We're going to trace that evolution a little bit of uh, different solos and different ideas of uh, uh, solo features and so forth uh, in bands, jazz bands and dance bands and some other groups as well uh, into the 1920s. We're going to start with a uh, set of tunes that feature jazz breaks, and probably these were the first types of uh, jazz uh, improvisation uh, aspects that uh, were happening in dance band orchestrations. In the book, Hear Me Talking to You, uh, Buster Bailey talked about how he didn't really know what the word improvisation meant during the 1910s and into the 1920s. He uh, said, if you used the word embellishment, I would have been much more clear on the concept, because that's what he did. He used a melody and he embellished it, and that's what many of these players are doing. Uh, they're taking some melodic element and using it to generate a short two or sometimes four bar solo uh, within uh, an arrangement of a, of a jazz or a dance tune as well. And this is how musicians were featured, at least initially, and how some of the first elements of jazz improvisation made it onto records and presumably were made it into uh, live performance as well. We're going to start with a, uh, a band that is not a jazz band, certainly, but was led by a fellow who was one of the great movers and shakers of African-American music in the 1910s, James Reese Europe. He was a bandmaster and a very good musician, came out of Washington, D.C. He uh, led uh, the band for the Castles, Vernon and Irene Castle, the white dance duo in the pre-World War I years, and he recorded uh, with his band... Um, uh, the uh, James Reese Europe Orchestra and so forth that was the group that he backed the castles with in their club appearances. This was a short period of time where uh, black bands were accepted uh, behind white singers and white dancers. It was almost, but not quite, integration at that point. It didn't last for very long. World War I sort of knocked that back into the uh, background, and uh, segregation was the order of the day throughout most of the 1920s. But James Reese Europe was a very uh, influential musician who is given credit for having introduced the foxtrot, or the music of the foxtrot, into the dance band world, because that was one of the dances that the castles were most famous for doing. When James Reese Europe went to uh, Europe in 1917 or 1918 with his Hellfighters band, the 369th Regiment band, they went off uh, to to keep the uh, the home fires burning, uh, even in Europe, uh, and uh, they were especially uh, famed in France for their jazz 
performances. It wasn't jazz as we know it, but it was musicians who were improvising at least some of these short breaks. That band made a number of recordings for Path A when they came back uh, after the war in 1919. And uh, unfortunately, Europe was stabbed in Boston in 1919 by one of his drummers, and he died shortly thereafter. So he wasn't uh, on the scene in the 1920s to have made uh, an impact there. We're going to hear their version of W.C. Handy's The Memphis Blues, and you'll hear different instruments in different sections all taking solos. Cricket Smith is a cornet player um, who may be in this band. It may be Russell Smith. No relation, but could be them. There are several clarinet players. You have some mandolins. You have all kinds of different instruments, trombones, um, many of which were integral to the early jazz style. And those were things that... um, Uh, Europe was uh, especially keen to uh, bring out in his arrangements. Following that, we're going to go to another performer who was considered pre-jazz, but really this fellow was was right on the jazz cusp, as it were, and uh, some people feel that he should have been uh, recognized for having made the first jazz records, and this man's name was Wilbur Sweatman fine clarinet player, a little bit novelty-based, but a very good technician, and he was recording back to the very early 1900s, doing ragtime tunes, including his own down-home rag and some other things as well. We're going to hear a tune that he recorded for Columbia in March of 1919. Um, Actually, I take it back, it's uh, slightly later than that, uh, June of 1920, Wilbur Sweatman's original jazz band, he called it. Either Russell Smith or Charlie Gaines on trumpet, Calvin Jones on trombone, Wilbur Sweatman on clarinet, Bobby Lee on piano, and Herbie King on drums. Same uh, uh, instrumentation as the original Dixieland Jazz Band, but a little bit different in style. The tune we're going to hear is a a combination of Think of Me, Little Daddy, and I'm Going Back to My Used to Be, both tunes by uh, Whitman and Cox. And Sweatman takes a couple of really extraordinary breaks, especially the second one in here. He was a very good technical clarinet player, and Garvin Bushell recalled uh, this particular record as turning a lot of the clarinet players in New York on their ear in 1920, just hearing what he did, just in this little short two-bar section. Following that, we're going to go to the original Dixieland Jazz Band, one of their early recordings done for RCA Victor. This is a tune that they put together called the Tiger Rag. Of course, there's a standard now. Features quite a few breaks, especially by the clarinet player, Larry Shields. Uh, these, uh, this particular tune was done in March of 1918. Nick LaRocca on cornet, Eddie Edwards on trombone, Larry Shields on clarinet, Henry Ragus on piano, and Tony Sparborough, later known as Tony Spargo, on drums. From there, we're going to go to an African-American band, King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band, and we're going to hear uh, a tune that they did that was one of the only two tunes, really, uh, that featured his second cornet player, Louis Armstrong. And uh, we're going to hear Armstrong's uh, approach to... to uh, continuous breaks. He had an amazing ability to stay sure-footed through uh, a series of breaks when he was improvising. This is a tune that's called Tears, and uh, as I said, features Armstrong quite extensively. This is King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, and was recorded in Chicago for OK Records in late October of 1923. King Oliver on cornet, Louis Armstrong doing the solo cornet part on our Dutri on trombone, Johnny Dodds on clarinet, Charlie Jackson on bass sax, Lil Harden Armstrong on piano, Johnny St. Cyr on banjo, and Warren Baby Dodds on drums. Then we're going to go up a few years to another Louis Armstrong uh, recording and really one of the great uh, 
experiences of jazz breaks there was. He took it as far as it could go in this tune, and this was the Potato Head Blues from May 10th of 1927. Louis Armstrong and his uh, Hot Seven with uh, John Thomas on trombone, Johnny Dodds on clarinet, Lil Armstrong again on piano, Johnny St. Cyr again on banjo, Pete Briggs on tuba, and Baby Dodds on drums. Very similar group, minus King Oliver. And uh, this will show the direction that Armstrong was going as a soloist and how he had evolved the whole idea of the jazz solo break. So those are our tunes looking at the evolution of the jazz break, beginning the jazz solo uh, process. Memphis Blues by James Reese Europe and uh, his Hellfighters Orchestra. Think of Me Little Daddy by Wilbur Sweatman and his jazz band. The Tiger Rag by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Tears by King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. And Potato Head Blues by Louis Armstrong and his Hot Seven.
was quite an evolution of jazz playing there from uh, about 1917 to 1927, a decade's worth of uh, evolution, certainly uh, brought to its fruition by Louis Armstrong. We started out with James Reese Europe and his 369th Regiment Orchestra, the Hellfighters, doing Memphis Blues, W.C. Handy's tune, which was pretty new at that point, only about uh, six or seven years old, and featured quite a few breaks by different members of the band. I'd said Cricket Smith. He was in the earlier James Europe band. It was actually probably Russell Smith. The trumpet player might have been the same fellow who played with uh, Fletcher Henderson in the next decade. We also had some trombone, some different clarinets, some written-out brass breaks, and all kinds of things in there. Then we went to that Wilbur Sweatman and his jazz band recording of Think of Me, Little Daddy, and that was uh, a really extraordinary performance by Sweatman, who was a very good clarinet player. He was famed for his novelty uh, ability of playing three clarinets at once on a tune like The Rosary, uh, and also was a good bass clarinet player, but this was a good example of how a jazz break could be influential. Then on to the original Dixieland Jazz Band, one of the first jazz recordings uh, made, generally accepted jazz recordings, Tiger Rag, with numerous breaks by the clarinet player Larry Shields in there. Then to King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, although when it recorded for OK, it was actually just simply King Oliver's Jazz Band, doing the tune called Tears, and that featured uh, one of Louis Armstrong's two first solos on record, the other being Chimes Blues, but this one uh, demonstrated his sure-footedness, as I said, uh, when the band stopped on these two-measure sections for breaks or played stop time, and how he could craft, a, even in 1923, a very compelling solo uh, statement from virtually nothing, Absolutely nothing, in fact. And then that uh, was uh, expanded on even more about four years later with his Hot 7 doing the Potato Head Blues, his own composition that featured an extensive uh, solo uh, over a stop time and breaks as well, really bringing that tradition to its uh, biggest climax, I think you'd have to say. But of course, during that period, Louis Armstrong was renowned for playing solos on uh, standard tunes, on uh, jazz tunes, on blues, and what have you. We're going to go on now to a set of blues, and these are early blues performances by jazz bands and dance bands and jazz band musicians featuring solos. And uh, as I said, most of the early jazz recordings didn't have a lot of solos, even the original Dixieland Jazz Band, very few uh, actual solo performances. Usually you'd have one player step to the fore a little bit and play a little louder, and the other players in the front line would back up a little bit, but still there was a sense of, of a group improvisation or uh, an arrangement going on at the time. We're going to start with the uh, recording of the St. Louis Blues by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. This is from 1920, so one of their later recordings. Features a vocal by a fellow named Al Bernard, very vaudeville type of singer, but um, a good performance nonetheless. This is, I think, uh, recorded for Victor, and uh, it was done actually in 1920, 20 or 21. It's unclear when exactly it was, but it features, after the second vocal, a two-chorus solo by Larry Shields on clarinet, and this became quite an influential solo. I don't know if it was original with Shields or if it was something he may have developed from another uh, source in New Orleans, but many clarinet players uh, recreated the solo. I can think of Edmund Hall doing a recording of this without Ralph Sutton in the 1950s, a live date from San Francisco, and also the Preservation Hall Jazz Band in the 1970s. Willie Humphrey recreated this solo as well, about 60 years after the original. So that'll be the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Uh, Nick LaRocca, Eddie Edwards, Larry Shields, Benny Kruger is added on alto sax, Frank Signorelli on piano, and Tony Spabaro on drums. 
After that, we're going to go to, uh, I wouldn't call it a curiosity, but something interesting. One of the most influential jazz players on the New York scene in the African-American tradition before Louis Armstrong made it there in the fall of 1924 was a fellow named Johnny Dunn. He was known as a freak trumpet specialist. He used a lot of different mutes and things like that. Uh, he also had a sense of the blues. He wasn't a... Uh, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool jazz player. He was a, a, of a generation a little bit before that. Um, but he was still a very good soloist, and he was very influential in his day. We're going to hear a recording he made of his own tune called Dunn's Bugle Call Blues. Sergeant Dunn's Bugle... Actually, it's called Dunn's Cornet Blues. The later recording was Sergeant Dunn's Bugle Call Blues. Basically the same tune. This was done for Columbia in uh, 1924. Johnny Dunn... Uh, cornet soloist at the label red and he's backed up by Leroy Tibbs on piano and Sam Speed on banjo. A little banjo solo in there I think or a little piano rather but most of it is uh, Johnny Dunn beginning to end you get to hear how adept he was using a mute actually I think it might have just been his hand actually instead of a, a mute in this case but a very evocative very vocalized player and you can tell why he was so influential. This was done um, in April of 1924. Louis Armstrong as I said showed up in New York in October, very end of October. So this was sort of the last hurrah of Johnny Dunn. Following that, we're going to go back to Chicago and hear a white New Orleans man, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, and we're going to hear their version of the Tin Roof Blues, which is credited to them. This has two solos in it that were uh, quite renowned in their day. The first is by George Brunus, the trombone player. This is considered to be one of the first trombone solos, jazz solos on record. Maybe it is the first, actually. Um, and then it's followed by an equally uh, influential solo by Leon Rapolo on clarinet. Uh, and both of these players were from New Orleans. And this was a recording that was made in March of 1923. It actually predated King Oliver's first recording by about two weeks. Uh, and done in Richmond, Indiana for the Genet Studios. And this is Paul Marez on cornet, George Brunes on trombone, Leon Rapolo on clarinet, Mel Stitzel on piano, and Ben Pollock on drums. After that, we're going to go back to uh, King Oliver and his Creole jazz band. This is one of the first recordings that they made and uh, is a version of Oliver's own tune, The Dipper Mouth Blues, and features, uh, again, a clarinet solo this time by Johnny Dodds, uh, which was a... a often copied solo in the annals of jazz history, both choruses, and then on to three choruses of King Oliver doing his own uh, composed solo on the blues. And this became one of the most influential solos of the day. Louis Armstrong recreated it uh, when he was with Fletcher Henderson about a year and a half later. This was recorded for Janet on April 6th of 1923 with Oliver and Armstrong on cornets, Honoré Dutre on trombone, Johnny Dodds on clarinet, and Lil Hardin Armstrong on piano, Bud Scott on banjo, and Baby Dodds on drums. And uh, that's the Dippermouth Blues. Then we're going to finish up with a blues singer, Trixie Smith, who uh, won a competition for blues singers in about 1921. She was kind of a vaudeville singer, but she had some good blues chops, and she made some fine recordings in the 20s, including this one for Paramount of her own tune, The Railroad Blues. On March 25th of 1925, Trixie Smith and her down-home syncopators, uh, members of the Fletcher Henderson band back her up, most notably Louis Armstrong, who gets a full chorus solo and shows how... Uh, 
soloing on the blues had evolved from uh, the other recordings that we heard before that. He again developed his own sort of architectonic stri- style of, of composing blues that led up to his West End blues that we're going to hear a little bit later. The rest of the band in this case was Charlie Green on trombone, Buster Bailey on clarinet, Fletcher Henderson on piano, and Charlie Dixon on banjo. So those are our blues tunes coming up. St. Louis Blues featuring Larry Shields of the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Uh, Dunn's Bugle Blues featuring Johnny Dunn. The Tin Roof Blues featuring Leon Rapolo and George Brunus, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Dippermouth Blues with solos by Johnny Dodds and King Oliver, King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. And finally, the Railroad Blues, Trixie Smith's Down Home Syncopators featuring Louis Armstrong. Thank you. 
So another tour through a lot of jazz styles and development over the course of a decade or so. We started out in 1921 with the St. Louis Blues, the original Dixieland jazz band. First jazz band to make records. Uh, one of the first to have a solo on the records, a full chorus solo, rather than just a break or uh, some momentary prominence in the ensemble. This uh, featured Larry Shields uh, on clarinet for two full blues choruses. That was pretty remarkable at the time. Then we heard Johnny Dunn uh, and uh, uh, Dunn's Bugle Blues, or Dunn's Cornet Blues, I should say, for Columbia in 1924. A feature for him uh, and some of his muted effects, as well as his open playing, playing with uh, Sam Speed on banjo and Leroy, Leroy Tibbs on piano, two musicians who played with him regularly. Johnny Dunn and his original Jazz Hounds was a group that had recorded quite a bit since uh, about 1920 or 21. This was a good example of Dunn's playing and what made him so influential on the scene at the time. Then on to the Tin Roof Blues by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings in Chicago, 1923, just about the same time, actually, within a, a few days of the Johnny Dunn recording. Uh, this was done with a solo by George Brunus, one chorus on trombone, generally credited to be the first jazz trombone solo, and one that was uh, copied by virtually every trombonist in the 20s and can still be heard in traditional jazz bands today. He was followed by a more original solo by Leon Rapolo on clarinet, although uh, he used some of the ideas that probably went back to the uh, Larry Shields version of St. Louis Blues as well. Then we heard the Dippermouth Blues, King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band from uh, almost the same time as well in March or in April of uh, 1923, uh, a little bit before I guess. That was uh, a feature for Oliver, a three-chorus cornet solo. That was also a remarkably long solo at the time, following as it did also a two-chorus clarinet solo by Johnny Dodds, both of which were very influential and often copied, sometimes by uh, the original players as well. Then we finished up with a really personal take on the blues, Trixie Smith's Railroad Blues, uh, featuring Louis Armstrong, given over a full chorus solo to him uh, at, towards the end of the record in between the uh, vocal choruses by the singer and composer Trixie Smith. And Armstrong was even at that point in 1925 considered to be such a, 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 an advanced soloist that he would be given solo prominence even in, in recordings like that, like uh, Trixie Smith's, that really were not jazz recordings per se. We're going to hear two or three more things by Louis Armstrong to finish off this show, talking about the evolution of the jazz solo. But first we're going to hear a couple of uh, things that are somewhat landmark uh, solo versions of the 1920s. The first one is a recording by the uh, Mound City Blue Blowers from 1924. This was a, a group led by Red McKenzie, who was a singer and also a player of the comb, an actual man's comb with a newspaper pulled over it. Now, I kind of got a kazoo-like feel. And Dick Slevin played an actual kazoo, so the two of them buzzed around while Jack Bland played banjo. Um, and for the session of March 14th, 1924, uh, Frank Trumbauer, who C melody saxophone player, was added, and we're going to hear a Trumbauer original called Red Hot, and this is one of the first jazz saxophone solos on record, generally given credit for that as well. So that's Frank Trumbauer. These were recorded in Chicago, uh, an early 
white kind of skiffle band in a way, as the English used to call them, uh, but with a mar marvelous solo by Trombauer. Trombauer is featured on the next tune as well, which is considered one of the first jazz ballads and jazz ballad performances. Singing the Blues by J. Russell Robinson and Con Conrad. This is recorded by Frank Trombauer and his orchestra, February 4th of 1927 for OK, and features an initial solo by Frank Trombauer that only hints at the melody of the song, which was unheard of at the time. It privileged uh, improvisation over the melody, and after his solo was done, it's picked up on an equally uh, inventive solo, perhaps more so, by Bix Beiderbecke, a classic solo, both of which were uh, copied by players all through the 20s and continued down to this day. Also heard Bill Rank on trombone, Jimmy Dorsey on clarinet and alto sax, Paul Mertz on piano, Eddie Lang on guitar, and Chauncey Morehouse on drums. After that, we're going to go to the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra in 1926. Not terribly long after Louis Armstrong left the band, uh, Rex Stewart was brought in to take his place, and he made a few recordings before he fled, uh, feeling he was not up to the challenge, but he certainly was on this recording, which is a Don Redmond tune called The Stampede, which will feature a fiery Rex Stewart solo towards the end, a much more measured cornet solo by his section mate Joe Smith uh, towards the beginning, and in the middle, a very powerful and forthright saxophone solo, tenor saxophone, by Coleman Hawkins, who had clearly learned quite a bit from Louis Armstrong during his tenure with the Henderson Band. And uh, this is considered one of Hawkins' first great solos and one of the first really great jazz saxophone solos of the day. After that, we're going to go back to Louis Armstrong. We can't uh, leave uh, the solo uh, discussion of uh, jazz in the 20s without hearing Armstrong's classic version of the West End Blues, which came uh, from 1927, and this was done with his uh, Savoy Ballroom Five, or occasionally called the Hot Five, uh, some different names to the groups there. Actually, it was June 28th of 1928, beg your pardon, for Columbia, and features in addition to Louis Armstrong on trumpet and scat vocal, Fred Robinson on trombone, Jimmy Strong playing a little clarinet call and response with Armstrong, also Earl Hines playing a brilliant piano solo, one of the first really great jazz piano solos outside of the tradition of stride piano or ragtime piano before that. This was a true jazz solo that uh, was not to be exceeded for many, many decades. Mansi Cara is on banjo and Zudi Singleton is on drums. Following that, we go to the actual Savoy Ballroom 5 and an arrangement uh, done by... Um, uh, Don Redman, who was sitting in for the date. He was in town from New York. He plays alto saxophone, along with the same band that we just heard. Uh, this is a, a tune by Alex Hill. Uh, it credits the arrangement to Alex Hill, but I believe I saw that uh, Don Redman actually said later that this was his arrangement. Could have been a, uh, a combination. Anyway, the tune is called Boku Jack, playing on words that uh, basically meant lots of money. Anyway, this features Louis Armstrong, to me, at his absolute peak, with his grandiose style, some really fast fingering, great virtuosic effects, and uh, a tremendous control over stop time, breaks, and all of the things we've been talking about in terms of the jazz solo. So that's what we're going to hear coming up. The Mound City Blues Blowers featuring Frank Trumbauer and Red Hot. Uh, Frank Trumbauer and his orchestra featuring Trumbauer and Bix Beiderbeck on Singing the Blues. Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra featuring Coleman Hawkins, Joe Smith, and uh, Rex Stewart on the Stampede. Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five and West End Blues. And the Savoy Ballroom Five, Louis Armstrong and Earl Hines and Boku Jack.
It's quite an evolution from Jim Europe's Memphis Blues to Boku Jack by Louis Armstrong in his Savoy Ballroom 5. But we get an idea of the evolution of the jazz solo there and how it progressed through the 1920s, late 1910s, even just from individual solo breaks through attempts at blues and the first sort of set piece solos. Could have put in all kinds of other things. I didn't include the clarinet solo in High Society from King Oliver's Band because that was a preconceived, actually a precomposed solo that was realized by Johnny Dodds and many other clarinet players. I uh, could have put lots of other things in there as well to come up with some different ideas, but these are the ones that uh, sort of stuck out to me. And we finished up uh, this past set with the Mound City Blue Blowers doing Red Hot featuring one of the first saxophone solos, jazz saxophone solos on record, Frankie Trumbauer, who was also featured with his own orchestra doing Sing in the Blues. In the next uh, selection that also featured, of course, Bix Beiderbeck, one of the best-known cornet soloists in jazz in the 1920s after Louis Armstrong. Then, uh, not with Louis Armstrong, but with uh, certainly his influence apparent, we had the Stampede done by Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra not too long after Armstrong left, about a year or so, uh, featuring, first of all, Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax, then Joe Smith, uh, who sat next to Louis Armstrong in the Henderson band for a year or so, playing a very measured, controlled cornet solo, and then a wild, out-of-control cornet solo by Rex Stewart, which brought a great deal of excitement to the performance at the end. Then we had to do West End Blues, which is probably one of the greatest jazz recordings ever made with the introductory cadenza by Armstrong, um, magisterial blues solo, uh, an incredible piano solo by Earl Hines that doesn't let down the, the, the intensity of the recording at all, but a, a blues performance built around two major soloists who were clearly uh, genius-level musicians. And then finished up with Boku Jack, uh, an Alex Hill tune that I believe was arranged by Don Redman uh, with a Savoy Ballroom 5 featuring the leader, Louis Armstrong, playing breaks, solos, uh, and lead parts as well, really combining his uh, stylistic uh, elements as a soloist and as a uh, lead uh, trumpet-playing musician as well. So, sort of a stream-of-consciousness attempt to uh, describe solos in jazz. And where else are you going to get this but at the Jazz Focus here uh, with you now, wherever you're listening to this podcast. My name is John Clark. If you'd like to support us, please do so. I'd love to hear from you as well. My social media is Wolverine Jazz Band. That's my band. You can find it online on our website, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. So, I hope you're interested enough to check out what we're doing now and again and keep listening to these programs. So thank you, and I'll see you on the other side.